0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, White Coats
1: of the Round Table. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of White Coats of the Round Table. And I'm joined here, as always, with uh, our lovely co host, Michael Asbach. It's great to have you back again, sir.
0: Thanks, John. I think that's the kindest thing you've ever said to me, so I'll take it. I'm gonna
1: carry. It's 2023. We're moving on, okay?
0: But today, <laughs> a start.
1: It, it, well, today's is a, is a is a very important topic. Very close to this, we're talking about trauma, uh, traumatic experiences, specifically in, in how it affects us in the workplace as healthcare professionals, but it's going to carry over into our personal lives. Because you and I live in Western New York and we've had a few tragedies recently that have affected communities, cities. Uh, We'll talk about the storm a little bit too, because there have been deaths. And I'm not going to overstep because I know I'm going to get into some of the topic we're going to be discussing, but there are lasting effects of just the last couple of weeks that are going to carry us into years to come. And Mike, I I know that you've done a lot of work uh, in researching the topic and you live in Buffalo, I live in Rochester, so you're going to be closer to it. So I'm I'm excited and curious as to your position, especially in, in the psych field, you're going to be encountering this much more than I am directly at least. So I was hoping to hand this over to you a little bit and maybe give your explanation as to maybe why this is an important topic for us to consider, even if we're not in a field directly associated with trauma or helping patients through trauma.
0: Yeah. So for those listeners that maybe aren't in the Buffalo or Western New York area, it's been a tough 12 months. 2022 was really difficult within the region. Um, Earlier last year, we had the top shooting where a white supremacist enacted a, a racially motivated attack on and I think killed 10 people. We recently had a snowstorm over the holidays that made national news and is somewhat recent, so I'm sure everybody at least was aware of it, and that unfortunately killed 40 people as well. And then most recently during the Bills game on national TV, one of the the players for the Bills, Damar Hamlin, suffered cardiac arrest on the field. And it was interesting because, I mean, it was horrible and awful, but it happened on national TV and obviously as a viewer, as a community, we we went through something with that, not even close to the level of what the player went through or what teammates or people on the field went through, but it was still emotional. It was still difficult mm-hmm. and, and it certainly elicited an emotional response. It actually ended up, my wife and I had a, a really good conversation with our nine-year-old who was watching mm-hmm. the game and had questions about, death and, you know, risk and, you know, doing things that you love, even if it's risky. Mm. So, it, it was interesting. The conversation after the football game, after Damar Hamlin's injury is kind of what inspired me that in healthcare, we, unfortunately, we work in careers that often expose us to trauma. If we look at the definition of trauma, it typically means a, you know, a catastrophic, catastrophic event that leads to some level of emotional response.
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: And my goodness, I mean, I don't know about you, and maybe at some point during this episode or even during off-script, we can talk about any personal experiences. But unfortunately, I think healthcare is a field that probably experiences trauma at a much higher rate Mm -hmm. than the general public. And as a result, that has an impact on us, not only in terms of our careers, but also our our overall emotional well-being.
1: This isn't something that we talk about a lot. And statistics in this area, uh, it's not something I'm well-versed on. So I'm curious to know what types of studies are out there even evaluating this and how somebody would, I mean, because PTSD, uh, as well as you know, better than I do, the, the measurements you have to take to understand the psyche of an individual going through PTSD and evaluating it's, it's probably difficult to do that among healthcare providers, given, uh, Psychiatric disorders itself, we don't talk about it much. It's very it's very personal. Uh, it's embarrassing for some folks, and people just don't want to let that in their life. So, how do they even perform these types of studies? Where do we mm-hmm. where do we find information like this? Sure.
0: So first, I want to differentiate because I think culturally mm-hmm. or colloquially, we often use PTSD and trauma you know, intermixed or interspersed. Mm-hmm. And and we want to be careful here because PTSD is a psychiatric diagnosis. It's in the diagnostic statistical manual and it has a very specific criteria. With PTSD, typically you have to have an experience where there was a threat of, uh, you know, a real threat of loss of life or limb. Mm-hmm. And then those symptoms following the trauma last for a minimum of 30 days. Trauma, mm-hmm. however, is a much more broad term. If we experience trauma, it can be as I said earlier, some sort of emotional or difficult event that leads or elicits some sort of emotional response. So the threshold for experiencing trauma, I think is much different and lower than a diagnosis or a formal diagnosis of PTSD. Mm. So just as we're thinking about this, we want to be careful because when we say trauma, we don't want to use that word um, in exchange for PTSD. They are two very different things. And certainly in healthcare, we, we have unfortunately a lot of exposure to trauma, but that does not necessarily mean that everyone that experiences trauma will have PTSD. So looking at the research, as you said, it is tough. Mm-hmm. You know, These are the types of things where we want to be very specific in our definitions, but because of those specific definitions, it also makes it maybe a little bit difficult to extrapolate out.
1: Mm-hmm. There was a
0: Canadian study done that estimated that the prevalence of PTSD among healthcare providers is as high as 40%. And just to give a frame of reference, when we're talking about this, these statistics, generally in the U.S., the, the incidence of PTSD is estimated to be anywhere from 8 to 10%. So that's okay. just a point of reference. About 1 in 10 people may suffer from PTSD. So this Canadian study found that upwards of 40% of healthcare providers may have PTSD. Another study in a University of Colorado hospital system it, within a tertiary care facility found that 18% of nurses met the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. So once again, higher than the general public.
1: And, and to make the point, it's, it was a trauma facility too. Correct. So, okay. Okay.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, obviously in that line of work, you're going to be experiencing trauma in terms of distressing emotional events, probably daily. Interestingly, within the University of Colorado Hospital study, an overwhelming majority, 86% of healthcare workers also had symptoms of burnout. So this is, I think, a really interesting thing. And I'd love to tie it back in and get your thoughts since you're the kind of the resident burnout expert on this podcast. But it makes sense that if you're having trauma within your occupation, Mm -hmm. if you're having, you know, developed PTSD due to trauma within your occupation, that that very understandably would lead to symptoms of career burnout or occupational burnout.
1: Yeah. I I think if we go back to the original uh, definition behind uh, clinical burnout, it's that when we have normal stressors or maybe even above normal stressors, but it's not balanced by a support system within the workplace. So if, I mean, if is a, is a really strong (laughs) statement because our provider staff and our support staff in hospital systems or any clinical setting doesn't seem to be up to par how could they support uh, a traumatic experience when they're trying to fill just basic levels of labor within the hospital it's it's not possible at this point for them so these numbers do make sense however i do want to clarify because we did t- see, we did separate PTSD from trauma and you mentioned PTSD is something where there was a imminent threat to body, limb, uh, potential death that lasts longer than 30 days. How is PTSD, how are we assigning PTSD to healthcare providers? Um, what type of danger are they in there that's causing PTSD then?
0: Right. So that it's an interesting question. So within PTSD, there is opportunity for indirect You know threats to life or limb. So if you have exposure to a traumatic event, and the way Mm. that I always like to teach my students is the patient has to think that there is an imminent threat to life or limb, or they witnessed an event that there was an imminent threat to life and limb. Okay, I think it's important. Yeah. So, for example, if someone presents to a trauma ER, you know, a level Mm -hmm. one trauma facility with a gunshot wound, certainly healthcare providers that maybe work that case or work the code may develop PTSD if they have, you know, an experience where then they feel like, oh my goodness, that could be me. I could mm-hmm. walk out of this hospital and get shot and the trauma bay won't be able to save me. Mm. So there does have to be specific, um, specificity in, in terms of the level of trauma. It has to be something that is considered life threatening, but it does not have to be life threatening to the individual person. It. Okay. it can be, a, you know, a, a tertiary event or a witnessed event as well.
1: Okay. Okay. So to bring this a little bit further, because we're talking about studies, and we're talking about how uh, ICU or trauma-level uh, facilities may see a larger amount of these type of providers experiencing PTSD, I mentioned ICU, but in Buffalo, there is a hospital system that had been uh, all over the internet, I don't know, maybe you've seen it or not, um, Mike, where these nurses were trying to talk about staffing with their administration, and it was a 50-to-1 ratio. And t- did, did you 50 just to say
0: 50-to-1? 50-to-1 ratio. Yeah, 50-to-1
1: oh ratio. And n- not that that's anything to uh, uh, scoff at, but I, did not, I didn't know at the time it was an ICU. I thought maybe general medicine was just bad enough. But an ICU, when it's probably supposed to be 2-to-1— And we're getting 50 to 1. You're seeing people die. And the excuse was, well, I mean, if people, if there was really a 50 to 1 ratio, we wouldn't see, we would see more death. We would see more. And this is what the nurses are saying. They're saying, that's what we're trying to tell you. There is more death because of this. And I, I would imagine that there has to be some reports on PTSD among ICU nurses then.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting story. And unfortunately, I'm I'm not up to speed on it, despite it being a local issue. Mm-hmm. But very often, one of the drivers of developing PTSD after trauma is a feeling of helplessness. Mm-hmm. Is very often when we experience a traumatic event, if we feel like we have no control over the situation, or we feel like there's nothing that we can do, mm-hmm. that can increase the risk of that trauma then eventually developing into a diagnosis or an ongoing condition of PTSD. So in a situation like that, as a, a nurse working in an ICU where it is, you know, dangerously understaffed, yeah, that feeling of helplessness can certainly be there because if you have patients that are maybe having poor outcomes that were preventable, but it's a staffing issue or mm-hmm. it's a an, an availability of medication, what an incredible feeling of helplessness! Knowing that patients yeah. are are not getting better,
1: and it could have been a different outcome. I, I want to talk about. I want to get into. There are going to be nurses and providers listening and never really considering PTSD. So I, don't, I do want to get into the specific uh, uh, symptoms, signs that one would experience. You might be able to self-identify. But uh, one other point I want to I want to make is in the COVID timeframe we've all been working through. If a nurse in the ICU uh, facility or uh, wing is seeing people die from COVID and they're exposing themselves day after day to COVID and that risk increases, knowing that they could eventually be in that ICU bed mm-hmm. where their patient mm-hmm. currently is. I mean, talk about trauma, talk about burnout, talk about somebody who might want to just get out of healthcare altogether because not wanting to be involved in that. I wouldn't be surprised that whatever numbers we've pulled Uh, from these studies are going to be increased. And we're gonna see more of this as we evaluate the impact to the healthcare providers following.
0: Yeah, I agree. And when I did research for the show, you know, we were looking specifically at trauma within healthcare professions. And a lot of this is not taking into account the past three years. Sure. So yeah, I agree. I think it would be higher because as a healthcare industry or as a profession, we've gone through some stuff in the past three years. And it's been difficult and the level of morbidity or mortality that I'm sure almost every single healthcare individual has witnessed has been unprecedented. So it's been a tough couple of years. And I think this topic is timely from that standpoint, because there probably are a lot of people listening to this that have experienced significant trauma within their job. And maybe you are struggling with symptoms of PTSD or even without a diagnosis, but just struggling to emotionally cope with what's happened.
1: Sure. And just not sure where to turn. So maybe we need to parse out the differences between clinical burnout and PTSD. Mm-hmm. We, it, we're we going to assume that whoever's listening right now have listened to the clinical burnout series, uh, and we're probably going to give more information in the future, probably have some more podcasts on it. So if you haven't listened, go back and listen to that episode, and let's uh, stress the differences here. So let's, ta- let's talk about how we identify if somebody has PTSD, uh, what we see uh, personally, how is it changing our our home life or work life uh, and how might one identify it? Sure.
0: So we'll actually just use the DSM criteria. Okay. So this is the, the diagnostic criteria that I would use if I saw someone who is having persistent difficulties following a trauma. Mm-hmm. And we can break down the, the diagnosis into really four different symptom domains. And for the purposes of the show, we'll, we'll leave it as a kind of broad overview. Sure. But so for PTSD, exposure to trauma, as we talked about earlier, symptoms that are lasting at least a month, and the symptoms can be broken into these four categories, thought intrusion, meaning mm-hmm. recurrent or involuntary or distressing thoughts, memories of the trauma, flashbacks, things mm-hmm. like that avoidance. So, uh, maybe avoiding situations that may bring those recurrent memories back, Um, avoiding circumstances that may be similar to the trauma, maybe avoiding the environment where the trauma happened. Very often, I see this for patients that were, um, you know, in a car accident. They may become very scared to enter a vehicle or not trust anyone else to drive or be scared to drive themselves. Negative effects on cognition and mood. So, typically after PTSD or after a trauma, we may see depression. We may see persistent negative beliefs about oneself. We may have cognitive difficulties um, or, you know, trauma-related cognitive distortions leading to inappropriate blame to self or others. Mm -hmm. Then lastly, we'll see hyperarousal. So, this may be irritability or anger outbursts with little or no provocation, recklessness or self-destructive behavior such as substance use, alcohol, um, hypervigilance, kind of always, you know, thinking something bad's gonna happen. We often think about hypervigilance with our military veterans. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you know, sometimes a military veteran will go into a restaurant and they won't sit with their back to the door. That would be a symptom of hyper arousal. Uh,
1: every single time I've ever gone to dinner with a police officer or a veteran, I have yet to sit with one who who hasn't asked me to move. Um, so that they can view the whole area and can see the door and they know where the exit is. This is very common.
0: Mm -hmm. So if, so those are the four symptom domains. So let's, let's bring it back to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if we have maybe someone that's working in an ICU, that's understaffed, I I like this as an example. So maybe you've lost a patient and you're having intrusive thoughts about, I could have done something differently. I can't believe, you know, this outcome occurred. Maybe you are really struggling to get back to the ICU, you had a bad outcome or you had something happen within the ICU that was mm. just, you know, horrific and it's hard for you to go back and it's causing an emotional reaction when you go back. Maybe you're depressed, maybe you're feeling like you're not good enough as a nurse or a healthcare provider because you had this bad outcome. And maybe you're irritable. Maybe you're coming home from work and you're, you know, you're Getting angry with your family, mm-hmm. maybe you're, you know, drinking to try and kind of self-medicate and, and help you sleep at night. If those symptoms are going on for more than a month, A, seek help. Mm-hmm. But B, that would be four symptom domains where you may actually meet the criteria for PTSD.
1: And PTSD. But I would argue, sorry, I just want to ask you, yeah. So this doesn't mean that this has to occur in the workplace. It can occur at home uh cuz some of these diagnostic criteria for other uh I would say disorders um would be it has to occur in a certain place it might be at work but this is going to feed and can feed into multiple areas of your life
0: absolutely it can have an impact on all areas just because the trauma was occupational doesn't mean that the symptoms related to that trauma may be limited to your occupational role mm-hmm. and the other thing i'd want to point out here cuz i think these four symptom domains are a nice um description or overview of what may be a trauma response. Now, we Mm -hmm. need all four of these to have a diagnosis of PTSD, but I would argue that if you're a healthcare provider listening to this and you've had some sort of trauma in your life, it doesn't even have to be occupational, and you're experiencing even one of these symptoms, you know, it's probably a good idea to at least identify, hey, something's wrong here. Maybe I need to go get some help.
1: We talked about how you identify it. Now, identifying it in somebody even identifying it in somebody else uh, which you may be doing as a psychiatric provider uh, it doesn't necessarily have to match up to the impact in the real real world or like what might be happening actionably in outside of the workplace so for for example you might see irritability you might see agitation hyper arousal but What does that mean for the individual? Because they haven't necessarily been identifying it. How is it impacting them or their families? Or where does this lead to if we're not treating it?
0: Yeah. So I think the way that we can answer that is maybe we take a step back from our clinical view. You know, Mm -hmm. as healthcare providers, we very often want to always look at things clinically and analyze them. But let's talk about the impact of trauma, you know, just more of the symptoms, Okay. So from an immediate standpoint, if you experience a trauma, let's say you have a bad outcome in the ICU, we're going to continue to use that as an example. Sure. So you may have feelings of numbness or detachment. Maybe you have anxiety or fear. Maybe you have guilt. You feel like mm-hmm. you could have done something different. Maybe it's a situation if you're in an ER and there's some sort of violent event. Maybe you feel like, you know, well, it could have been me. Why wasn't it me? Why wasn't mm-hmm. it this my coworker? You might have exhilaration as a result of surviving. If sure. it's a situation where there's a threat to your life, I, unfortunately, locally, several years ago, there was a, a physician who entered the hospital and, and killed several coworkers. So maybe mm. in a situation like that, you you feel euphoric that you survived. Sure. You could have anger, sadness, maybe a feeling of helplessness, like we talked about earlier. A depersonalization, feeling like you're having an out-of-body experience. Mm. Maybe you're disoriented or feeling out of control. Maybe you have denial. Maybe you feel like, no, there's no way that that patient passed. There's no way that that bad outcome happened. It just couldn't have happened to me. And maybe you don't feel anything. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe you have a constriction of feelings or maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you have a bad outcome in the OR or a bad outcome in the ICU and you just feel completely overwhelmed by the emotions of it. Mm
1: -hmm. So I want to bring, before we move on, because I know that, I'm thinking myself, maybe we're going to be talking about this a bit more on off script, like you said, our personal experiences we may have had. but what as a pharmacist, what comes to mind is medication errors. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think about surgeons as well, uh, because how many times has a surgeon um, unfortunately lost a patient due to uh, the inability to operate, or it was just, an, it, it was a prognosis that had a very low percentage of outcome, but still maybe even a mistake was made, a slip of the hand or the wrong method or whatever it be, you, your actions has, have caused a uh, significant harm uh, or death or disability of a patient And you may have to live with that the rest of your life. I would imagine that's traumatic. And I imagine it could lead to PTSD. And maybe there are surgeons who have never stepped back into the operating room because of situations like this. Uh, Even yourself in psychiatric patients, it's suicide. Uh, You lose a patient because of suicide. That could be traumatic, I'm sure.
0: Mm -hmm. It's such a great tie-in. And For listeners that haven't listened to our episode on medical error, we talked about the Redonda Vaught case. Mm -hmm where uh, the wrong medication was given, and then the patient unfortunately passed. And medical error is one of the leading causes of death in the US. It's, I think, in some studies considered the leading cause of preventable death. Mm. So it's exactly what you said. You know, we live in a world where we know mistakes will happen. I think it's foolish and naive in healthcare if we just assume that we can work mistake-free. The statistics tell us that we will at some point make errors.
1: Okay. Well, let me and, make, let me be the first yeah. person to bring it up then. Um, I'm a pharmacist. We, uh, in my pharmacy currently where I work my 40 hour, uh, we are running between six and thousand, uh, six and 7,000 prescriptions per week. And if I'm taking even just a, a, a fourth of that, um, or even like 20% of that, you multiply that out by weeks and years and give yourself a 99.99% accuracy, accuracy rate, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's not six six Sigma, but you will have uh, errors. I mentioned mm-hmm. this to you in uh, when we were in school, we had to sit down and we had to calculate what the potential error rate we would have or uh, where it, or there were near misses or potential deadly uh, errors. And it was sobering. Uh, and when you continue to have an error, I've had errors before. I, I do remember one specifically where uh, one of my interns gave out a prescription, or a a prescription, but included a, the incorrect syringe in an oral medication. Which you think outpatient meds and antibiotics, it really it's hard to hurt somebody. But when you give somebody a ten ml syringe and they were supposed to use a one ml, and they were supposed to give 0.8 and they gave eight ml's, uh, this one child was got significantly ill from it, uh, wasn't a lasting impact, but, uh, even though it wasn't me, I was overseeing it. I was involved in some of the conversations with the patient themselves. It was hard to hop back on the horse. Uh, I had to have somebody from administration talk to me and say, John, Mm -hmm. you know, these things happen. Unfortunately, that is the way of life. But I, there are coping mechanisms that I had maybe moved into that weren't healthy uh, and it may it may have taken some guidance from my wife at the time or administration to say these there are better ways to handle this. So coping and mechanisms can be just as traumatic, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, and that's a situation where we would consider that a near miss mm-hmm. in the in the med med error terms, where it was an error, but it did not lead to a negative outcome, or the negative outcome was minimized, and yet it still had that really profound emotional impact on you. So imagine. Sure. I always think about, especially within the context of trauma as a healthcare provider, I'm sure you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, right? (laughs) Mary! Yeah, but do do you remember, you know, when George is young, he saves the pharmacist from making that med error because the pharmacist is drinking. But then when George is not there, the pharmacist makes the med error and then, you know, goes to jail. And that's a significant part of the story is that, you know, part of the the fabric of the town was changed by Mr. Clower making this med error it has an impact
1: this is my realm mike don't take over my stories so you you started to allude to it
0: and then i i derailed you but let's talk about coping mechanisms yeah. because i think even regardless of what level of trauma and just like your story i think trauma can present in many different ways trauma not ptsd ptsd requires a very specific diagnostic mm-hmm. criteria but trauma i think really can be any event that elicits you know, a really strong emotional response and Mm -hmm. even a med error or a near miss, you know, that was a traumatic event. It sounds like just because of the emotional impact it had. So let's talk about, you know, how people may cope. Let's maybe focus on the negative ways that Mm -hmm. we cope with trauma, because I think that is what can lead to burnout. It's what can lead to, you know, difficulties with mental wellness or even interpersonal issues because of our jobs. So maybe I'll let you take this one. Talk me through some of the negative coping mechanisms that we may employ as healthcare providers to after a trauma.
1: I've never been shy with anybody uh, that knows me in telling that I go to see a therapist. Um, I've had a therapist for the last uh, couple of years uh, because of some personal things in, in my life that definitely was Traumatic and and continues to have an effect on my life, my family's life personally. Uh, but the easiest things to go to, I, I would imagine everybody would come up this list. Number one would be substance abuse. It's so easy to escape and it's escapism. You don't want to deal with the thought or maybe you have dealt with the thought, but you just need some rest. Substances will provide you that rest for a moment. Uh, but the problem, and you could speak better better to this is although it it helps in the short term, it may help you go to sleep, it may help you relax to the point where you can actually be with your family, or it may be as far as I need to black out because I can't stop thinking about this, and so they consume large amounts but we all understand and have seen patients or even family members go down this route and not get help, and it affects every area of your life, your relationships, your job, um, certain health risks. You may become even violent. We talk about depersonalization, but how about um, your personality and character, self-characteristics changing because the, your brain chemistry changing due to some certain substances? Uh, it can overwhelm your life and uh, change you into a person that you weren't before. Uh, I mean, that is probably number one. Moving forward, though, isolation, avoiding others, not wanting to open yourself up, or even social anxieties, uh, because there is stress in certain situations socially that that cause you to say, you know what, that's adding additional stress on. I don't want to talk about that subject. I don't want to talk as healthcare professionals. Every time we get at, get to a dinner table with people we haven't seen for a while, they want stories. Well, maybe you don't want to talk about these stories. Maybe these, been, these have been so impactful, but now you're not going to Thanksgiving dinners with your family. Uh, maybe you're not going to birthday parties that your kids are supposed to go to because on the off chance, somebody wants to talk to you about this. Uh I'm curious to know what what other ways you've seen your patients uh avoid, because I know my experiences. Um I I've, I've avoided due to this in the past, but what other ways does isolation and avoidance affect us or how can that carry out in our life?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's hard because we by our nature are social animals. We're social in in almost everything that we do. And yet When we experience something difficult, whether Mm -hmm. it be depression, anxiety, trauma response, very often our instinct is incorrect, but our instinct is to isolate. Mm -hmm. And that really is dangerous. It's a problem because what we do is we end up then cutting ourselves off from very often one of the most helpful things that we can do. So, we'll talk a little bit later on as we move mm-hmm. work through these show notes about healthy coping mechanisms or how we can, you know, handle or deal with trauma. Okay. But one of the hard things with avoidance is very often the avoidance can then exacerbate the problem. It can make sure. things worse. If you've had a, a really bad experience at work and then instead of going home and maybe leaning on your spouse, leaning on your family, kind of embracing that social support system that you yeah. have, maybe you go to the bar and you're mm-hmm. sitting at the end of the bar just trying to numb the pain or numb the feelings, mm-hmm. ultimately that's not gonna help and may even make things worse. So it okay, really is okay. a, a dangerous thing because often these negative coping mechanisms are done to try and help, and in the long run will actually increase your risk of having more problems.
1: So there's got the, there's the opposite side as well then. So isolation and avoidance where you can't even be socially present with these people so you stay alone. But you may not experience that. Maybe you continue on in your social engagements, you continue on in work, but the hypervigilance, the hyperawareness, staying on guard all the time, uh, although someone who has gone through those experiences sees us as a protective way to carry mm-hmm. on their life, saying, I will not let that happen to me again. Um or I will not make that error again because mm-hmm. of what it did to somebody else. And so you think it's possible to avoid, not avoid people, but avoid that problem by mm-hmm. by educating yourself more, just stimulating yourself more. And that can have its negative impacts as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think so often, you know, maybe you would think of like a surgeon that had a really bad outcome and then doesn't want to go back to the OR because mm-hmm. they they think that they'd get the yips. They Mm -hmm. think that, you know, they don't trust themselves to make those decisions on the fly or decisions in a really pressured situation.
1: Sure. Yeah. um, Also not being able to uh, take risks because in healthcare, it is practicing. And sometimes we do have to make decisions that don't align directly with medical literature. Mm -hmm. You may resolve to something that isn't as uh, beneficial of an outcome for a patient. However. You know what the tried and true is, uh, and you stick with what you know, the medication that you know, which will not give the best outcome, but you aren't willing to risk what you don't know at that time. New drugs, new therapies, new uh, procedures uh, may not be something that you're willing to uh, take on in your practice. Uh, so here's
0: another one that I'll give you that I think is a negative coping mechanism that we may not always think about. Working too much. Okay. So I I see this very often in my patient population. And I think in healthcare, it's probably an impulse of ours as well is maybe we have a bad outcome. You know, a surgery goes wrong. And instead of avoidance, instead of feeling like I can't go back, Mm -hmm. I need to get away, the negative coping mechanism or reaction is I'm not letting another patient get, you know, lost or have another negative outcome. And this surgeon now ends up working. 80 hours a week because they feel the only way that I can prevent a negative outcome from reoccurring is if I'm here. You know, maybe it's the surgeon who's then hanging out in the ICU long after their cases are done to make sure that his or her patients are getting everything that they need because they recently lost one. Mm -hmm. We have to be very careful with this. Work is good. I'm a big believer from a psych perspective. I think work is an excellent thing. I have major concerns with AI and just the displacement that comes with that because work gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It gives us belonging, especially in a world where we become more and more individualistic and isolated. But the flip side to that after a trauma is it may prevent us from seeking help. If we're just burying ourselves in our job, it may prevent us from spending time with family or friends and really, family and friends are so important after a trauma because they're there to help and support you and love you. And certainly, co-workers are important, but they don't fill that same role. Um, mm-hmm. You know, work relationships are going to be very different and probably much more surface level as opposed to like true deep friendships mm-hmm. and family. And if you're working too much, you may not be taking care of yourself. You may not be sleeping well. You may not be eating well.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: these things can ultimately hurt your health as well, both physically and mentally.
1: So I think... Uh- We're going to be. We need to move into what the healthy coping mechanisms are. Uh, I think with the show notes, uh, we're going to be able to show you some other alternative uh, unhealthy coping mechanisms. But my my last statement on working too much is that this individual who takes a very um, I want to say progressive in the sense that they're trying to move forward in their approach uh, and saying that this wasn't going to happen again there is the possibility that they gain this confidence that I've learned more, um, I've got more certifications now, and this is going to reduce my risk of error or whatever whatever caused this trauma. But once you have that confidence in yourself that this is going to happen because you've powered through and then you do have that error again, uh, the trauma of understanding that I thought I could do this. And even when I tried my absolute hardest, it still happened. Uh, that will potentially change your self-view or your um, uh, it's going to change your self-awareness for sure. And how much more is it going to affect your, your home life when you feel as though I have failed? And Because probably that's what it comes down to is mm-hmm. a feeling that you are alone, you're the only failure, and this has only happened to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so let's let's that's pretty dark low things but people who have lived in it this is very real and it may be striking chords for some listeners um I, i'm already my head's already spinning thinking about some things that uh some poor coping mechanisms i had and some trauma that uh, my family's gone through so let's move into the healthy coping mechanisms because this is what i've learned in uh therapy this is what my wife reminded me of saying that's a coping mechanism i'm like don't talk to me my don't therapy me that. don't do this <laughs> so uh as the professional in the psych area i need to take a step back and let you talk more about uh ways and interesting ways even that we can cope with these in in the right area uh at the right time sure So I
0: think what we're going to do is I want to talk about healthy coping strategies after you've experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. So I would caveat that, that if you've experienced trauma and you're having difficulties that are lasting more than just a few weeks, Mm -hmm. go talk to someone. If this is a work-related issue, almost every job is going to have resources through your Mm -hmm. HR department. They're going to have opportunities to have you meet with a counselor, have you meet with someone within the organization. Mm -hmm. Seek that out because very often people around you care about you at work. They
1: just may not know that you're suffering or struggling. Mm -hmm. So go talk to someone. EAP is their... we talked to if you're in management or an administration, you've had these conversations with your employees where you recognize that something's off. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you do, I feel it feels like it's hand for us at this point is to say, do you have help? Uh, what is your support mm-hmm. system? We can help here at our employer. Mm-hmm. Here's an EAP card. And you don't know. Um, I, I have been able to utilize this uh, in a way in the past. You don't know how impactful it is on this person's life if and when they decide to actually take that help. Uh, you don't realize w- that you've been coping with these things incorrectly uh, and maybe even causing more damage to an already uh, difficult situation.
0: One of my favorite things to do when I'm talking to staff at my job is if they're coming to me with a difficult patient or mm-hmm. a difficult issue, if I can sense that there's you know some level of stress or, mm. or they're, that they're struggling to handle the situation- very often, I'll just at the end of the conversation say, "How are you doing?" And I can't tell you how many times it just it completely throws them off yeah. because yeah. we're not talking about them; we're talking about a patient care issue or some work related thing. And they they you know it takes them a minute to be like, but at the end, they're generally incredibly appreciative. Just yes. that quick check in as a as a leader, as an employee, as a coworker of, "Hey, you doing all right? How are you?" It shows how are you handling humanity. Yeah, yeah, it
1: shows that. We, cause we've gone into this field where if you and I wanted to make money and a lot of it, there are easier ways to do it than mm-hmm. healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we know that we've kind of come into this field saying, uh, part of this is understanding that I'm here as uh, a benefit to society. I think I can give something and I think I'm the person to do it. So I can handle this. This is how I'm built. but maybe not. Maybe you need to have some more humanity and see yourself as human and not a robot. And I, uh, I want to applaud that because rarely when I see somebody having a hard time, or maybe they're not handling a patient or customer well is to think of like, get like, you need to have better service. You need to have better. It's not always that you don't know what's going on in your life, uh, in their life. So let's not assume let's offer that. I think that's great. Mike.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So let's let's talk through healthy coping strategies. So I think step one is, and I'm going to be corny here, but it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if you've had experienced some level of trauma, it is completely normal to have a stress reaction. So mm-hmm. emotions after an event are normal. We, we, I think all too often, especially in America where, you know, we prioritize stoicism or being tough we very often feel like we're not supposed to have sadness or mm-hmm. fear or anger after something difficult. And you know what, if you have a negative outcome with your patient, it's okay to cry. It's okay mm-hmm. to be yeah. angry. It's okay to to be sad about it. So, having those types of emotions, especially immediately following a, a traumatic event, doesn't make you weak. It doesn't mm-hmm. make you crazy. The key with this is most of those immediate emotional reactions will fade with time. Mm -hmm. If they don't, that's where, as we talked about earlier, those EAP programs are really beneficial. Mm -hmm. So the way that I would look at it is within a couple weeks, if you're still feeling those really strong emotional reactions, it's still okay. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you, but that probably is an indicator that it's time to go talk to someone and start Mm -hmm. seeking help. I think the other thing that I would say is spend time with others. We've already talked when we were looking over the negative ways that we cope with trauma, that being with family, friends, and neighbors can really help you realize that you're not the only one that's been affected by things. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody in your family or in your social circle may understand healthcare related trauma, but having difficult things happen at work is something that a lot of people can relate to. And just being with those people can help, you know, rebuild trust in others it can help you feel that you're part of something. It can help you make you feel better about yourself, and it can relieve stress by allowing you to take your mind off of things. If mm. you have a really bad day at the hospital, but you're able to come home and you know spend some great quality time with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, that can be a really good way to just distract yourself and take your mind off of things that were maybe very emotionally taxing at work.
1: It might be even give a sense of accountability as well. If you're sure. someone who is prone to substances or isolation, uh, if you're around people, they're going to see how this is affecting you. And if you have those good relationships, I am hope that it, they're, they are strong enough where they can bring that to you and, and, and show you that, uh, bring light to it. Absolutely.
0: I think one of the other things I, I think is really important here is to combat that feeling of helplessness that so often happens with trauma. Find a way to to honor the loss. Very often, I think trauma and grief present in very similar ways, and sometimes that's because trauma very often is some sort of loss. But finding a way to you know take time to honor and affirm your values, maybe honor the person that was lost or was affected. I think that can be really helpful. So, in our job, one of the ways that we do that is if we lose a patient within our practice, even if it's to old age. You know, very often, if it's been a patient that's been in our practice for a long time, we'll get a card and we'll send a card yeah. to the family. Yeah. Um. Sometimes, if we lose a patient, um, one of the providers, you know, if it's a patient that I've been seeing for a while, I'll call the spouse and just express my condolences. And it's not easy, you know, it's not a not a fun conversation to call someone's spouse if if they've recently, you know, yeah. lost their loved one. But I think it's really good because. For that person that's grieving, maybe they've lost their spouse, having one of their you know, care team, one of their medical providers reach out and, and express sympathies is a really important thing. It helps them feel less isolated, but I think mm-hmm. it can also be very cathartic
1: um, as a healthcare provider just to feel like you're able to do something. It's it, That's a hard one, Mike. I think this is going to be difficult for many people because in medicine, we've distanced ourselves from mm-hmm. patients. Mm-hmm. In the sense that we have to maintain this demeanor of professionalism and we we view emotions as unprofessional mm-hmm. or getting too close to the patient. Uh, there are concerns, valid concerns that one might have about this, uh, but allowing yourself to be human in front of somebody who is a patient and breaking that barrier in a way uh, can be more helpful than holding true to, to what you think is professional. I, I had a patient who uh, was dealing with some something uh, neurological. They didn't understand what it was. Later on down the road, they found lesions. Um, and his wife uh, confided in me and would talk to me about how things were going. Uh, things did not go well. Uh, there was even an accident at one point where he injured himself on an accident and he ended up passing away. And when she came and saw me, uh, there was a sense of I knew what was happening because of her face. And I walked out. I I had helped her for months and months and months, and she just but just broke down and, and started crying. And I hugged her and we cried. And it was it it was something I would never I would never uh instruct somebody to do, but at that time it seemed humanly appropriate uh appropriate to do this. And there was a connection over it. And we still maintain that professional demeanor, Mm -hmm. but yes, find a way to grieve. There are things that are going to affect you and it may involve the patient or their family.
0: So here's a great example though, of a way that you can maybe do that, where you can find a way to reduce that helplessness without crossing what may be professional boundaries. When the Mm -hmm. Buffalo Bills player got injured, DeMar Hamlin has a charity where he does toy donations or toy drives and then gives away toys to underprivileged kids. And over the course of the past week since DeMar Hamlin was injured, his charity has now raised $7 million. Mm. Hundreds of thousands of people have donated. Why are they doing that? The reason they're donating is because they've, they've had this experience, this traumatic event. They witnessed you know, this individual have a, an injury that nearly mm. took their life. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that they felt that they were able to help, that they were able to show that they were part of the solution, was to donate to his charity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's such a great example where doing something doesn't necessarily always have to be, you know, hugging a patient or yeah. showing showing you know fragility. Let's in front be of clear: a
1: I'm Irish. I don't hug. They initiated. And I was obligated.
0: (laughs) I I hug at work and I'm not a hugger. You can ask anyone in my personal life. I I, I don't hug. German. Yeah, I know. But I hug patients when they they need it. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't have to be something like that. Maybe you make a donation to Mm -hmm. a hospital. Maybe you go and volunteer at a soup kitchen or you Mm -hmm. volunteer at a charity that would have been, you know, something that the patient was interested in or passionate Mm -hmm. about. But find something that can help reduce that feeling of helplessness. The last thing I'll give in terms of healthy coping mechanisms is if you're feeling angry, if you're having these strong emotional reactions, take a pause. Yeah. Recognizing, being able to self-assess and know that these, these emotions are you know running hot and they're are strong can really be helpful because it's normal to have irritability and anger after some sort of traum- traumatic event and having this stress reaction. But we want to make sure that that anger, that irritability doesn't lead to us having difficulties with our self-control or causing relationship strain within our life. So, you know, the last thing you want to do is have some sort of bad trauma at your job, at the hospital, and then come home and mother F your kids because, Mm -hmm. you know, they were misbehaving and we've all done it, right? You know, we've all had tough days at work where then maybe we, we uh, unfortunately misplace our stress on our loved ones or those around us. So after a trauma, just make sure that you're identifying if you're feeling like your emotions are getting a little bit overwhelmed, take a break, go take a walk, find a way that you can take a step back and it's okay to have those emotions. We don't want to negate or discredit those emotions, but we also want to find a healthy outlet for those emotions so it doesn't lead to additional strain or conflict with those around us.
1: Try to have a little perspective yourself as when dealing with this and saying like, I need to lean on somebody else and the people that I can lean on, uh, they're the ones that should I should lean on. And the people that I can't trust and, and, and don't see them as a support system, it's because they don't understand what's happening. And one day when they go through it, they will remember and see, and it will change them as well. So really with the naysayers, leave it out, stay with your support system. Um, but I, I do want to give kind of a charge or or something for these people who may not be experiencing trauma uh, can bring to the workplace or have these resources in their back pocket uh, but also for those who need this now where can they find some guidance uh, past where they're what they're hearing right now
0: yeah I think one of the best places to go is the VA so not everybody, you know, that goes to the VA website needs to be a veteran. Hmm. But because the the Veterans Administration is the, you know, largest treater of PTSD and trauma in the entire US because of the military being obviously a major source of trauma, they have a ton of resources on their website that can be very helpful and in the show notes a lot of this is linked back to the VA because they really are just a great resource for this. But if you're a healthcare professional that has you know, maybe had some trauma or just simply wants to learn more about trauma and how to cope and how to heal, I would really recommend going to the VA website. You can look at our show notes or you can just Google Veterans Administration PTSD and you're going to find all the resources. Mm-hmm. They even have an app that you can download that has various um, things, that, meditation, things like that,
1: that you can do, do to help. Do you, you have to be a veteran to uh, get support through that app?
0: not through the app. So obviously you have to be a veteran to go to the VA and see Mm -hmm. a provider, but to use the resources on the website, they're open to the public and available. So it's a really great place to go if you want to learn more or if you're looking for things that you can utilize within your own life.
1: Very good. Uh, What would you say would be a close second uh, if you just want to test the waters and you don't necessarily (laughs) want to talk to anybody yet? A little bit embarrassing or scary still.
0: Yeah, so there's, there's a ton of different resources you can look up. Most counties have, you know, warm lines or things like that mm-hmm. that you can call that are not crisis services. It's not a suicide hotline, but it's a line for people that are struggling. Mm-hmm. As we talked about earlier, usually almost every healthcare organization is going to have some resources available, such as counseling or some sort of trauma, um, you know, debriefing or processing sure. that's available to you if you just go ask your HR rep and then lastly, you know, 988 is now the national mental health hotline. So if all else fails, if you don't know where to turn and and you feel like you absolutely need to talk to someone, just dial 988 mm-hmm. and they can get you linked up with resources within your local nine, area.
1: 998 or 988. 988. Okay, 988. 988 is now the new national mental health hotline, so it's okay. like 911 but it's for mental health. Very good. Uh I, I I do want to point to one more thing because this is my soapbox. Uh for those of you who have used EAP and started therapy with somebody and you did not like it. You said this person didn't understand me, or we just didn't match. That's extremely common in therapy. Uh therapy, in a sense, is like dating or trying to find a partner. Uh, you need to understand you need to connect with this person and you have to believe that they could, they can assist you, that they have the skills. And most of the time, the first time this happens is like your first date off of Bumble. It's not going to go well. Uh, and for those people who have found their therapist on the first try, it's like a one in a million. So therapy is, is extremely helpful, uh, to lay down these coping mechanisms in a continuous fashion and build upon layers rather than these bite-sized pieces. So this is my encouragement to tell you, those of you who don't want to go to therapy at least try it out first. There are it's usually free through EAP for 6-12 weeks whatever they they'll pay for. Uh, but for those of you who have quit because you'd not find the, you, you haven't found the right person, there are now online portals which you see everywhere with better help um or uh talk there's a what was that there's a new one now talkity i don't know what it's called but uh, better help has been great they have like you said meditations they even have group classes uh lots of resources outside of this uh, use it um they usually run programs that are extremely inexpensive for the first few sessions to try out. So uh, that is going to be my charge for for anybody listening is if you are wary of it, uh, it is proven to be one of the best ways to handle these types of situations that has a uh, longevity. Uh, I don't know if you have a closing statement, but I will die on that soapbox.
0: You know, I think that's a perfect place to end. I think okay. the, the closing statement is if you're unsure, if you're struggling and you don't know what to do, go talk to someone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who you talk to because generally in most people's lives, you are surrounded by people that love you, that mm-hmm. care about you and want you to succeed. So if you feel alone, if you feel that you're struggling, reach out, whether it be at work, whether it be a loved one, whether it be a friend start engaging in conversation, tell people what's going on. Cause that's the first step towards getting help.
1: Very good. Well, I think, I think this was wonderful. I, th- this is more of a somber topic, but this is more impactful to people's lives. than I would argue many of our topics that we will see this multiple times over in our life and we're going to experience it ourselves. So uh, I think this is great. I think the research you did was wonderful. And I I hope to talk about this a bit more in the future and anybody listening, if you want to talk about this a bit more, if you have ideas as to where you might want this conversation to go, uh, we'd love to hear from you Uh, on our Facebook page. You can message us there. Uh, If you go over to the the website, com, you can also see some ways to contact us there. Uh, But for for as of right now, Mike and I are going to be moving over to the Off Script podcast. We're going to talk a little bit more about some personal experiences we've had. But uh, as always, uh, if you like what you hear or if you found benefit in this, we hope that you will like this, uh, that you will share it, uh, and even comment. We, we love to see comments. Uh, and a little sneak peek, we will be uh, having a drawing coming up. We're going to be promoting it soon. For some uh, Starbucks gift cards uh, for those of you who will reach out and comment and maybe provide some ideas of things that you want to discuss so stay tuned for that but for for now we are going to the off script podcast uh, as usual John McDonald here with Michael Asback. back uh, we are white coats of the round table and thanks for joining us